The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. You're listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Eat better, get healthy, and help animals. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. Virginia Woolf wrote, one cannot think well, love well, sleep well, if one has not dined well. Today's program will show that that goes for everyone in the family companion animals notwithstanding. Hi, I'm Victoria Moran, your host for this hour of the Main Street Vegan Program. Thank you so much for being with us. In our second half, we'll be speaking with Diane Wenz about her new book, Truly Healthy Vegan Cookbook. And right now, we're so fortunate to have for an encore engagement, Dr. Ernie Ward. Dr. Ward is an internationally recognized veterinarian. He's written three earlier books, Chow Hounds, Why Our Dogs Are Getting Fatter, among others. He writes the Vet Is In monthly column for Dogster Magazine. He has a really popular YouTube channel that's called Off-Label Veterinary. And we're here today talking about a brand new book, The Clean Pet Food Revolution, How Better Pet Food Will Change the World. And Dr. Ward wrote that alongside of Alice Oven, who's an animal welfare and ethics writer, and Ryan Bethencourt, co-founder of certainly my dog's favorite kibble and treats, Wild Earth. Welcome, Dr. Ernie Ward. Oh, Victoria, it is so great to be back with you and your audience. Well, it's wonderful to be talking with you and to hold this book. You know, when I heard that this book was coming, I thought it was going to be a little bitty thing. It's like, how much can you say about feeding pets plant food? This is a tome. I mean, the research (laughs) section alone really goes to show that this is a science. This is an area that really we're, we're coming into going forward, something that we need to be looking at for a whole lot of reasons. So why do you want this book to get in the hands of every possible human who loves a dog? And Wow. Well, I really appreciate that praise, uh, Victoria. You know how difficult and challenging it is to write a book and compounding that being a veterinary scientist. You know, I, as my editors of all of my books have said, 
can you not write a page without a scientific study or citation? And, and that's why, I mean, we think it's important because we want to make sure that, that people that are very skeptical about plant-based nutrition in general, whether it's for their pet or themselves, they understand there is a large body of scientific evidence to support this belief. So, you know, there's 27 pages, a very tiny citation, you know, but I, I really wanted to make sure that veterinary colleagues concerned pet parents knew that this was founded in science, not just opinion. And the reason that I think this book is important for everybody is because they may today, listening to this broadcast, have the same epiphany that I had a few years ago. So I've been a lifelong vegetarian and vegan, and I always thought I was part of the solution, just like many people. You know, I'm not the one who's contributing to animal welfare harm. I'm not damaging the environment and causing the Amazon and Australia to burn. I'm the good guy here. And as a veterinarian, I really never thought much about, is there a contribution of the pets, the pet foods, the pets themselves? And then in 2017, UCLA published a study by Dr. Gregory Oaken, and he evaluated the environmental impact and greenhouse gas emissions involved with pet food production. Well, someone forwarded me this paper, and I came to the very quick re realization that I was part of the problem. And what Oaken found was that about 25 to 30 percent of all greenhouse gas emissions produced in the United States originate in pet food production. And further, he found that about 25 percent of all animal-derived calories, you know, meats and chickens and dairy – we're being fed to our dogs and cats. So suddenly I have this awakening in 2017. I said, oh my, I am actually part of the problem. If we're going to actually save our planet and eliminate animal suffering, we're gonna have to tackle pet food head on. That's what led to us founding Wild Earth and of course this book. Mm-hmm. Now, I think though that a lot of us who want to feed our dogs, and we'll, we'll get to cats later. I know that's more of a complicated issue. But but even dogs who are arguably omnivorous, and you can argue <laughs> the point for everybody, we want them to eat vegan food the way that we do. And yet I think we sometimes feel guilty because we look at them and, you know, they, they've got the long snout and the big teeth. <laughs> and right, so right. what's interesting to me, though, is that your new book doesn't start with the environmental ramifications or the rights or welfare of farmed animals, but with how animal ingredients are harming our pets. So let's right. start there with the ultimate consumer. Right. So again, you have to say, okay, why would I want to transition my dog or in the future, a cat to a plant-based diet or one that doesn't need animal ingredients, killing animals to feed them. Uh, and again, the ethical debates in this book are just fabulous, great deep explorations, which is one of the reasons I wanted to co-write this with my animal ethicist friend, Alice Oven. But if you start to look at what is going on in pet food, most pet owners out there are familiar with all of these pet food recalls. I mean, I can't open my email every week without seeing some issue going on with pet food. And most of it has to do with contamination and adulteration and, and quite frankly, toxins associated with animal meats. I mean, the vast majority, as we go into the book in detail, you know, these recalls and these contaminants are from meat production. But, you know, there's another part of this story that I, that I lean into a little bit, and that's, okay, we get it. There's bacteria. There might even be some 
toxins. I mean, we've all heard about this pentobarbital that keeps popping up in, in pet foods. Pentobarbital is the euthanasia drug, which actually just tells us that horse meat is winding up in lots of pet food. Uh, it's a bigger problem than anybody is really admitting, and we go into some detail on that as well. But it's the things that we aren't testing for that also should concern pet owners. Because meat today, meat production is nothing like it was 50 years ago or 100 years ago. I mean, the chicken, the beef, the pigs that are made for, for food today are so full of growth hormones, antibiotics, nitrates, all kind of things to force them to grow faster. Now, look, that's a welfare issue in, in and of itself. But the fact is, this meat is so different. And the other thing, too, we talk about, like, what about microplastics? This is something that a lot of research is being done right now, but all of this stuff winds up in animal meats that we feed our pets, and then you look at it, wait, that's all they eat their entire life? That's one of the reasons why many leading researchers are saying American dogs have a 50% cancer rate. They believe it's the culmination of many of these toxins, and those toxins originate in animal meats by and large. Well, let me ask you about cancer. I'm going to get very personal here. So listeners, I hope you'll give me a minute for a personal question. Um, my dog, Aspen, and my grand dog, Oliver, were both uh, plant-based their entire life. I believe my grand dog uh, got an egg every day because his dad at that time was vegetarian, not vegan, and <laughs> thought he needed that. Aspen was fully vegan. And they both lived long, but when they ultimately passed, it was because of lymphoma. Is that something that a lot of dogs face? And is there something that we can do to prevent that? Well, there is a strong genetic link between lymphoma and dogs. So mm -hmm. right there, this tells me, and, and again, listeners, please be, be clear on this. Most cancers are of a genetic origin or have a genetic link to them, just like with humans. So, you know, if you have, um, my father died of prostate cancer, that's why I've been screening myself closely every year since I turned 30, right? So there are certain cancers that you're just more prone to have due to your hereditary factors. Um, what we're really looking at, there are these other cancers that aren't associated with genetics. And that's, and again, there's a lot of question marks out there, but what uh, you know, it's, it's fascinating when you read this book and you, you hear the interviews with all of these top researchers that we, we have, you know, hi highlight in the book, you start to realize, wow, they keep saying the same thing over and over again. Is food part of this process? Are there contaminants in these animal meats that we aren't really testing for? That's sort of the theme that I, I want to make sure people are clear on because, again, the way we produce animal meats today, specifically in this country, is so different than nature intended. And by pumping them full of all of these harmful chemicals and compounds, being exposed to microplastics and other, other types of contaminants, this is where I think most of us are getting most concerned. So what about just feeling sorry for a dog who's only eating kibble? So I, I have to tell you, my, my current dog very much liked meat. The woman from the shelter handed him to me and said, he'll only eat chicken soup and hot dogs. I thought she was kidding. She was not. He had somehow been, I don't know, put on this high sodium diet. So over time, we have, have weaned him into being vegan. But when he did get some meat, he loved it. And he loves faux meat, human faux meat. So right now he's on wild earth. But once a week, he gets a Beyond Burger. Am I harming him? 
No, I love that approach. In fact, you know, I've always been a fan of what I call the hybrid menu. If you go back, you know, 20 years ago, this is what I was espousing. You know, feed the kibble for convenience, but then supplement it with fresh vegetables whenever possible. Or in your case, nowadays, we have Beyond Meat and all these other amazing uh, plant-based uh, meat substitutes, if you will. But getting back to this, what do they like? Do they crave? Okay, I have two daughters. They were raised vegetarian and vegan their entire lives. They go crazy for chocolate. I would argue that my freshman at Chapel Hill, if I said, hey, you can eat all the chocolate you want all day long, that's exactly what she would do. That doesn't mean it's a well-balanced or healthy diet. So as a parent, you know, you have to sit back and go, okay, even though they seem to really love this thing, if it's not the healthiest or best choice for our family, then we've got to be careful. So again, you know, if you put a bowl of beans and a bowl of of candy in front of any child, and I would almost argue any adult in America, they're going to always go for the sweets. So again, does that mean that that's what we should feed them? I would say absolutely not. What a great point. Because I think with animals, particularly dogs, and I think it's been exacerbated by all these ads about your dog is a wolf, right. but your dog is not a wolf. And yet we think that they somehow have these wild primal instincts that that have not evolved away. I, you know, I mean, I'm watching my dog lying on a bed with his head on a pillow. Doesn't exactly right. seem like a wolf in the den. Right. And it's even worse than that. So we spend, uh, you know, a fair amount of the book going into the science of why dogs are omnivorous, why actually, quite frankly, as you probably have noted from reading the book, I don't even like these terms, om omnivore, carnivore, herbivore, because they just actually don't work. These are 18th century taxonomical nomenclature terms that really were based on skeletons of animals they found or people provided. So it, it's, they're, they're not nutritionally they're not nutritional terms anymore. So it's, it's really a frustrating thing. So I think readers will really enjoy that part of the book where we take down this, my dog is a wolf thing, but there's something even worse and more insidious about it. This entire concept of my dog is a wolf originated in the past 20, 30 years. And this is clever marketing. This is something to, to tap into. And, you know, it's, it's really fascinating because if you go back and look at dog food and even how we fed food historic or fed dogs historically, the food has been a variety of vegetables and meats and breads and, and quite frankly, whatever was left over. And this is why when you look at the science and you look at the genetic differences between the gray wolf, which is where we believe the, the dog originated based on the genetic record. And if you look at the difference between the genes of domestic dogs, there are at least 36 that we found so far, 36 major genetic differences between the gray wolf and domestic dog. Of those 36, fully 10 are related exclusively to starch metabolism. So that means that dogs have, you know, multiple times more efficiency of, of digesting starches than wolves. Again, all this does is validates that dogs and humans have co-evolved, cohabitated for tens of thousands of years. We've amplified those genes by breeding, by selecting certain dogs with certain traits that we liked. And of course, now we've made them really good in a wide variety of food store sources. But, you know, it's, it's really interesting, too, because... Look, the listeners today are being inundated by tens of millions of dollars in marketing. It's on TV. It's on the radio. It's on the Internet. It's everywhere. Your dog is a wolf. Your dog needs meat. You know, meat is happiness for everybody. And that's a difficult 
message to overcome because here we are going, wait, there's a lot of science that counters that. But yet you see flashy ads on TVs. You see, you know, big hulking men, you know, chewing down on a steak and you're like, oh, I guess that must be. Ah, it's amazing how, how we can be so brainwashed by people trying to make a buck off of us. So yeah. and, and, you know, and Victoria, one, one quick thing too, just, you know, yeah. I don't, I don't, think that everybody in the animal meat ingredient industry is, you know, maliciously trying to harm us. I mean, I, I think it's just like you said, they're trying to make a living. So, so part of me says I forgive and I try to live with that sense of grace in my life, you know, but on the other side, you're going, this is outrageous. You know, some of these things are blatant falsehoods and yet, you know, they have marketing budgets in the millions and millions. And if they want to continue to propagate this Disinformation, we can completely be manipulated, and, and we are. Wow. So the book, everybody, write this down. I know I'm always telling you to buy books, but this is so important and so different from anything I've ever recommended before. The Clean Pet Food Revolution, How Better Pet Food Will Change the World. Now, you have a section in here called, what, called Ancient Proteins for Present-Day Pets. So, you know, you read that and most people think we're talking about mastodon, but we're not. What are these ancient proteins? Right. Well, so when we first set out to create a plant-based pet food company, you know, I look like many of you, I had fed, you know, one of the handful of vegetarian vegan dog foods on the market. And I just never was super enthusiastic about them. You know, I mean, you would hear me in the press, you know, say, hey, there's some pretty good options out here. But, you know, it was lukewarm. I never worked with any of those companies because I just couldn't get behind it. And part of the reason was I never was quite happy enough with like some of the macronutrient levels. So the proteins and the fats in particular. And look, formulating a plant-based dog food is no easy task. I mean, we've got a team of brilliant veterinary nutrition scientists, PhDs, you know, and basically they just, when I say I need this, you know, they basically say we can't. And I say, let's find a way. <laughs> and we do. And we found a way. And one of the ways that we found was through fungal proteins, nutritional yeast proteins. And that is why we were able to come up with the world's first high protein plant-based dog food, 31% protein, never been done before. In fact, everybody told me it couldn't be done when we embarked on this journey in 2017. And of course, you know, now you're gonna see a preponderance of these things. But getting back to you know, ancient, See, koji, which is really where we started, is a Japanese uh, fungus. It's a yeast that's been used to, you know, add flavor to to rice and miso and bean paste. It's the secret sauce of, of soy sauce and even sake. So that's really where we started. Our, our chief uh, science officer at the time, Dr. Ron Shigeta, uh, who is uh, of Asian descent, you know, he was like, why aren't we looking at this as a protein source? He found some very clever ways to do some fermentation uh, technology. And, and, and really, you know, all we've done is modernize the process. We've made it more efficient. You know, it's, it's funny. They keep calling our food Wild Earth the beyond meat of pet food because Aww. really all we've done is sort of taken existing technologies and, and ingredients and amped it up. We've improved the technology so that it tastes better. We have higher protein levels, you know, and it's, it's ultimately just a better product. So with any kibble, one would assume that it's heated uh, to a high temperature, you know, kind of reminds me of granola or grape nuts or something like that. And I have read that there is a problem with that, with advanced glycation end products 
Do we need to worry about kibble, whether it's Wild Earth or anybody else's for that reason? Yeah, I think it's a really great question, and it's one that we don't have a clear answer on. The one advantage of using, of course, plant-based proteins is we don't have to go to these high, high temperatures that you do with meats. And that, that's people that cook a plant-based diet at home already understand that basic concept. So we do get to sidestep some of those issues, but I think it begs a larger question of, okay, you know, what are these, these potential pitfalls with mass-producing kibble or canned or whatever. And I would say that there are a lot of companies out there like ours that are sensitive to these topics and we're doing everything in our power to reduce and eliminate those risks. Will it ever be, you know, as good as you foraging in the in the forest for your home plants? Absolutely not. And in fact, I would I would argue, you know, that would be the ideal way to live. The problem is it's not sustainable. So that that model of us growing our own food and so forth I mean, that kind of didn't work up until about the, the mid-1700s, you know, quite frankly. And so we've got to figure out better ways. I think what you're going to see as our company moves forward, even more exciting products, even more exciting processing that uh, I wish I could share more with you right now. But ah. I can tell you we are very sensitive to all of those questions. And we're, we're really, you know, when, when I called the book The Clean Pet Food Revolution, I mean, this goes back to when we started the company. Company, we said, how do we revolutionize pet food? And, and I was really careful with that because some of our, our early you know, founders, you know, many of them would use the terms like disruption. And I get that. That's kind of a buzzy Silicon Valley you know, based word. I get that. But I really thought, wait, I, I don't know that disruption is necessarily what I'm trying to do. I'm actually trying to change it for the better. And I always think of revolutions as actually you know, taking an existing system breaking it down and then making it better. And that's really where we're setting out when it comes to making kibble, making canned food, making a wide variety of products moving forward. But, you know, I love the way you sort of set this up. You go, look, I feed wild earth to my dogs, but then, you know, once or twice a week, I give them a Beyond Meat patty. Love that. I do a very similar thing. We substitute sweet potatoes. We substitute a lot of broccoli. So that's the kind of toppers that I actually use. I like using fresh vegetables whenever possible with my dogs. It just happens to work really well, you know, with a kibble. You just put it on top and they love it. So with kibble, are we better leaving it out all day or putting it out? What you don't eat, we'll pick up. Yeah. Now I am a believer in meal times, right? So so dogs cats, humans, I really want us to consume those calories. You know, and, and cat physiology is different, so I, I want to kind of table that for a future conversation about some exciting uh, news that we'll have maybe in the near future around cats. But, um, you know, I like the, the concept of, okay, here's our dinner. You know, we eat it all now. Um, one of the reasons I like that actually is just digestibility. You know, dogs were designed to sort of take in these one or two larger meals. This, their stomach just is able to expand about five times its normal volume, which of course is very unique, uh, very different than, than humans, for example. But I do, I don't want you to feed five times the amount of food, but I do want you to lean into that normal physical physiology of that cycle of, okay, a dog normally eats once or twice a day, and that seems to work out really well. It also helps keep their, their stools regular. Uh, remember that your dog should poop about 12 hours after a meal. So again, when you're trying to sort of look at how the digestion you know, works, you know, think of that 12 to 24 hour cycle. Your dog is probably pooping in the morning, what it ate at night and so forth. 
Mm. So I know we're going to talk about cats another time, but my next guest is such a cat person that I, I would feel that I was insulting her, not to mention all my many uh, <laughs> listeners with cats in the family. So just uh, give us the rundown on cats, meat, vegan, what can we do? Right. Uh, and, and yeah, exactly. And so there are, you know, already a couple of, uh, of complete and balanced cat foods out on the market. Uh, I would say that, you know, it's no secret. We've been working on this for some time. Uh, and there's really two pathways moving forward. The first, and I would argue most exciting, is going to be all around the, the cell-based meat. So you guys have heard about the cellular agriculture, you know, even the Impossible Burgers, the first step in that line of us actually taking different cells, putting them perhaps in yeast, as we've been doing with, with uh, our other proteins, uh, and then growing, you know, identical cells to animal meats, but now they come from, you know, a, a lab, a fermentation vat. That's really where the exciting is. What's holding that up, quite frankly, is government oversight and regulation. This is why Everybody is sitting on the sidelines just waiting for the FDA and the USDA now to give us the go button because right now they're just they're honestly trying to figure out who's going to regulate it. Once this gets settled, which I hope will happen this year, you're going to suddenly see a flood of big, big time research and products coming onto the market. So it's very, very exciting. That's the first pathway. This is why, you know, two years ago when we debuted our mouse meat, so we actually made a lab grown mouse meat. You can understand why we're all in the scientific community very excited about this prospect. Okay. So eventually we may be able to say, Hey, your dog can have a mouse meat. Your dog, I mean, I'm sorry, your cat can have a mouse meat, uh, a bird, a small fish, whatever we dream up in, in our, our scientific labs. The second part though, is where we are today. And I would say that just recently we've been able to get some of those ingredients that were traditionally believed to be only found in animal meats. And I'm speaking about things like arachidonic acid, uh, vitamin D3. Historically, we thought, oh, you have to get them from animal meats. But people weren't asking the question, well, wait, where does the animal get this, this ingredient, this nutrient to begin with? And so now we're starting to find things like microalgaes, lichens, kelps that contain all of these wonderful fatty acids. So what you're going to see over the next year or so, year to 18 months, you're going to start to see those types of ingredients being used in complete and balanced AFCO, AFCO uh, you know, approved foods for cats. So it's a really exciting time. We're just on the cusp. And again, it's just a matter of science catching up to the need. Let's be honest. You know, the big bucks are in human foods. So most people have never given this a second glance. Then companies like ours come along. Investors are savvy. They go, wait a second. These guys may be on to something. They then give us funding to allow us to go out and do the science, research the ingredients, and put together products. So that's it's where we are today. Fabulous. Wonderful products, wild earth foods, and a wonderful book. You've got to get this. The Clean Pet Food Revolution how better pet food will change the world. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today, Dr. Ernie Ward. We'll do this again. Thanks a million. Thank you.
We're glad you found us. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome back to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. Welcome back, everybody. It's so wonderful to have you with us today when we are really celebrating the non-human animal kingdom. So we've talked about companion animals. We're going to be talking about a wonderful new cookbook here in a minute or so. And the dedication says, for the animals. So that's what we're about today. And that's what a whole lot of us are about a whole lot of the time. If you're new to the Main Street Vegan program, welcome so much. Thank you for being here. You can find out more about uh, Main Street Vegan and about my work if you go to MainStreetVegan.net. There's all kinds of exciting things happening over there, like the Main Street Vegan Academy, where vegans can come to New York City and in a magical six days, study with some of the best and the brightest in the plant-based world and leave as certified vegan lifestyle coaches and educators. So take a look at that. And also, if you're on Facebook, we do have a special group just for people who enjoy this podcast. It is called the Main Street Vegan Podcast Listeners Group. Uh, So you can go there and join and we'll say welcome, welcome. And then you can have input onto the guests, the topics uh, that we have on this show, and we have conversations about what we've discussed here. So I warmly invite you to that group. And now I am so, so excited to be able to introduce somebody that I absolutely adore. You know, the theme for the month of February is people to fall in love with. (laughs) But in all honesty, a lot of these people are people I have already fallen in love with. And Diane Wenz is one of those that I have admired for a long, long time. She is actually a graduate of the very first Main Street Vegan Academy class. And she is also a certified holistic health coach. She is a plant-based chef. She holds a certificate in plant-based nutrition. Diane coaches people from across the globe, supporting them in improving their health and well-being as well as making the dietary and lifestyle changes needed to go vegan. She also teaches both private and public cooking classes in the northern New Jersey area. And her brand new book, which I am nuts about, is Truly Healthy Vegan Cookbook, 90 Whole Food Recipes with Deliciously Simple Ingredients. Welcome, Diane Wenz. Thank you so much, Victoria. Thank you for that introduction. And I have to it's, say, I, I love and admire you as well. I've I've admired you since um, I think it was 2009. You spoke at the Institute for Integrative Nutrition when I was studying to become a health coach, and I absolutely loved your talk then. Oh, that's so kind. Thank <laughs> you. And 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 we know that you are a great cat whisperer. So Mm. when you listen to the show, you will notice at the end, I made sure that Dr. Ernie talked about cats because Diane Wenz was coming. (laughs) Thank you. Yes, I love cats. I have four cats. Cats are so aesthetically perfect. And 
they're just such good friends. I think a lot of people who don't know cats, they don't get the friend part, but mm -hmm. these are loyal, warm, wonderful beings. Yes, they definitely are. They they know when there's something wrong. They know when they when you need some comfort. They get upset if you're not home when you're supposed to be home. Yeah, they definitely are. I think if for one minute we knew about the humanity of all the non-human animals, this whole world would change. Oh, absolutely. Definitely. Yeah, we could never go on as we do. Mm -hmm. So I have to tell you that if there was some sort of disaster and I had to abandon my home with only one cookbook, I would take this one today. Oh, wow. Yeah, and and I'll, I'll tell you all the reasons why. One is okay. it's of my pay grade. I'm not a complicated cook, mm -hmm. so I need something that doesn't scare me. Mm -hmm. It also is really healthy without being bland and uninspiring. And it's fun, and you put your mm -hmm. personality into it. So mm -hmm. truly healthy vegan cookbook. So I first want to ask you how you came up with the rather revolutionary idea to juxtapose healthy and vegan. When these <laughs> days, you know, the kind of conventional wisdom is, well, vegan means you don't care about health, and plant-based mm -hmm. means you do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I advocate for a healthy vegan diet for my clients. I, I think that, you know, a lot of people, I hear people say, I'm vegan for the animals and I don't care about myself. It doesn't matter what I eat. It doesn't, you know, my health doesn't matter. But I think it should. I think you should be vegan for both. You should be vegan for the animals and you should also care about yourself, right? And um, when I, I went vegan for the animals, I went vegan um, in 2001 um, I was already vegetarian, but I had been reading about, back then it wasn't really well known what goes on in like dairy farming and, and the egg industry. And I had picked up a book that talked about those things and I, I was kind of horrified. So I decided to uh, take uh, eggs and dairy out of my diet and miraculously my health improved. I, um, I had suffered from chronic headaches growing up and lots of sinus and allergy problems and um, within about two weeks, headaches were completely gone. And so I realized there was something to this eating this way. And, um, so I think, I think it's possible to be both vegan and healthy. And, uh, that's, that's what I advocate for my clients. And that's what I would hope other people would want for themselves as well. Well, and you certainly make it easier in this cookbook. Now you do talk early on in here about the top 10 vegan diet mistakes. Now you don't need to give us all 10, but just the ones that come to your brain right now. What, sh what or should we watch out for? Um, well, I think it's, it's um, really common to kind of load up on the vegan meats and cheeses. I don't like to say fake meat because it's fake implies it's not edible and it's definitely edible. <laughs> um, but it's since it's so highly processed and a lot of them are just really full of oil. Um, I don't think those are, that's not the way to go. And I also think that when um, people go vegan, if they go from eating meat and cheese, to eating the vegan meats and cheeses, they're, they're not going to like it so much. I think it's going to, their taste buds haven't adjusted. Um, and I think a lot of people tend to eat 
they kind of load up on the pasta and, and carbs and things, and they don't really eat too many vegetables. And so I think that's a big one. You, you got to eat your veggies. That's where all the nutrients are. Um, and people also, I think sometimes they don't eat enough food. You know, there aren't as many calories in, in vegetables as there are in meat. And I'll hear people say, oh, I tried to go vegan, but I was hungry all the time. So eat something. <laughs> you don't have yeah. to be hungry. It's not about deprivation. I was doing a, a cleanse for January very, very loosely, but mostly raw food and a focus on fruits and vegetables and just not as much heavy food as I tend to usually eat. And what I learned attempting to do that is I love heavy food. Mm -hmm. I mean, I love beans. And I, mm -hmm. you know, I, I just, I love food that kind of sticks with me and makes me feel like I'm attached to the earth. And I think sometimes one of the reasons that people are, are afraid of, of going um, vegan or botanical, as I was talking <laughs> with uh, Dr. Joel Kahn, having a botanical diet <laughs> is that it's just going to be too water rich. Mm -hmm. So I guess there is a way to get a balance. Yeah. Foods like, um, like leafy greens and lots of vegetables, they have a very light energy uh, where things like whole grains and beans, they're kind of grounding. And I think we need a balance of both so that we do feel full and, and we do feel kind of grounded. Yeah, I feel, and even just cooking, I know I can make a great big salad and I could put raw broccoli in it and it would be a salad. Or mm -hmm. I can put steamed broccoli in it and all of a sudden, it's more like a meal. It mm -hmm. just kind of gives a little bit more um, stability because I guess when you steam, some of the water goes away and it just feels uh, more substantial. Mm -hmm. So in, in your opinion, Diane, you're trained in plant-based nutrition. You're a certified holistic health coach. What makes a meal truly healthy? Mm, that's that's one of those things that, that can be kind of debatable from, from person to person, right? And and I think it can be kind of confusing, too, because there's so much information out there. A different person will give you different advice. Um, there's so much conflicting information. Uh, for me, it, it's a diet or a meal that includes vegetables, whole grains, beans, nuts, you know, I think whole plant-based foods, I, I, you know, keeping processed foods to a minimum. Um, I don't think people need to avoid them completely but I don't think it's a good idea to have them at every meal or even every day. Um, and, and yeah, go ahead. Well, I completely agree with you. And for anybody out there saying, oh, it's some kind of health food thing, I just need to share some of these recipes with you guys. Mm. Shepherdess's pie with sweet potato crust. I mean, please, mm -hmm. anything that says pie and crust uh, <laughs> is going to be very appealing. Uh, we've got vegetable chili, lentil soup. And then, of course, we come to desserts, chocolate avocado ice cream, date truffles. Oh, come on. These healthy, mm -hmm. too? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, they're made with, I mean, it's, it's, dates are sweet, they've got sugar in them, but it's made with nuts and, and dates, so it's not processed sugar, and um, yeah, if you want to indulge, go indulge, just, I think you should do it in a, in a healthier way. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. So for anybody listening who's new and who is thinking, okay, am I just going to be eating tofu and 
nutritional yeast. (laughs) Explain a lovely vegan pantry and fridge to the newcomer. I could could probably live off of tofu and nutritional yeast, but (laughs) um, I think newcomers, that would turn them off. Um, uh, Yeah, so my pantry has um, lots of beans and grains, rice, and I, I have both dried beans for when I've got time to cook them, and I've got canned beans for when I'm in a rush. And um, I have lots. I have rice and quinoa. Those are my favorite grains because they're easy and and they're really versatile. You can use them in lots of different meals. Um, I have lots of condiments uh, like tamari and Bragg liquid aminos, which is very similar to soy sauce, but it's not fermented. And I, I use lots of different, um, vinegars and, um, spices. I have, um, a huge spice rack. In fact, the, the picture of me in the back of the book, I'm standing in front of my spice rack. I'm very proud of my spice rack. Um, and then, uh, in the fridge, I've got, lots of fresh vegetables um, and in the freezer in case I'm in a pinch there are some frozen vegetables um, lots of fruit I also have nuts I keep my nuts in the freezer so that um, they stay fresher because the oils can go rancid if they get too hot Um, I've got seeds and um, fruit for snacking on it's very basic and, and, and very simple. And I think whenever I talk to longtime vegans, that, that's always what it is. And, you know, maybe a little bit of uh, tree liner Miyoko's mm-hmm. cheese. Yeah, I, there I, do have, I do have some tree line cheese in the fridge right now. Yes, I'll admit that. <laughs> so one of the things I appreciate in the book is you have a produce storage guide. And I think this is one of the things that intimidates people. I still have a thing going back and forth with my husband about tomatoes. He insists that they need to go in the fridge and I insist that they don't. But what are some of the basic things that people need to know about the care of vegetables? Yeah, Um I think it's good to know what goes in the fridge and what doesn't go in the fridge. And I do have that in there. Um, A lot of times it's a matter of keeping them in bags. I think sometimes what we do is we take the the produce and put it in the drawer, you know, the the fruit drawer, the vegetable drawer in our fridge. And what winds up happening is like the gases, they kind of, they have like a chemical reaction takes place and, and they kind of, make each other go bad. I don't really know the science behind it, but um, I like to keep my produce in bags and you don't have to use the plastic bags from the store. I I don't think plastic is a good idea, but you can get those like um, those grocery bags that are reusable and they're perforated and you keep your vegetables, keep a lot of vegetables in those in the fridge and that will help keep them fresh. And I also have some of those, um, even though I did just say I don't like to use plastic, I reuse them. I've had them for years. I probably have them for 15 years. I've got some reusable plastic containers that actually have little holes in them that are specifically designed for vegetables. And I keep some in there as well. And that helps keep them fresh. Oh, that's good. And I just find that going to the supermarket once a week eating this way does not cut it. I I find at least I need to go twice to keep everything fresh and yeah, I'm usually at the grocery store twice. I'm lucky I live around the corner from a Whole Foods, and I think everybody over there knows me. They recognize my face at least. Um, so yeah, I go I go usually twice a week. 
so Diane, just talk to some of our um, listeners who may want to produce a cookbook. Now, I think a lot of people have a collection of recipes. They love trying out recipes and, and working with them. And, you know, let's add a little more this time and a little less of that. But to get from there to actually having a published cookbook, there's a lot of in between. So give us a little tutorial on how to write our first cookbook. I was really lucky because the publisher approached me. And I'll tell you, I was, I've been wanting to write a cookbook for many years. Um, I think, you know, the first step is the, the theme. What do you want the theme to be? And in this case, healthy recipes. Um, and then the second step is to sit down and write down an outline and, and figure out how many chapters you're going to have and what's going to go into each chapter. And then break that, break each chapter down by what you think will go into it. And, and then fill in those blanks. I think um, it's the same with, with almost any goal you want for yourself. It's making, you know, creating an outline and then breaking that outline down into smaller steps. Because any, any kind of goal, it just seems like so huge. Just thinking about that thing, like writing a book, that sounds really daunting. But once it's broken down into steps like that, it, it makes it a lot easier. And, and you know, the, then from there, once you have your outline and, and what you want to go into each one, just, just start writing. And what about the recipe development and, and recipe creation? So for each one of these wonderful recipes in your book that's got the precise measurements and all that, mm. how many times did you have to make that recipe to get it where you wanted it? In some cases, so what I like to do is I like to just sit down and say like, okay, I'm going to make a recipe for a veggie burger. And then I think about what should go into the veggie burger. And I think about what I've made in the past and, um, so I'll write down what I think it should be and then I'll go into the kitchen and make it and see if it works and if not I might adjust it as I'm going through and um, write down what I did and sometimes surprisingly it works the first time sometimes I have to make it several times so the like for example the the veggie burger that's in this cookbook I think I made that five or six times before it worked um, but uh, like stir fries and things like that, I usually get on the first or second try. Um, but I also had a wonderful team of recipe testers that helped me. Um, I, I had, uh, I think there were six or seven people that were helping me test recipes. So they were also trying it and letting me know if it worked or if it didn't work, if they needed to adjust something. So I couldn't have done that without them because they were really helpful. I think there should be a Facebook page or some kind of website, vegan cookbook authors looking for recipe testers. Because mm -hmm. I think a lot of people would love to do that. They just yeah. don't know that it's a thing. It is a thing. Yeah, it's, it's really helpful. So let's move a little bit from the book, but not too far, everybody. Okay. Truly healthy vegan cookbook. <laughs> it's, it's, it's wonderful. It truly, truly is. I'm going to be using this all winter long now that I'm not doing the January cleanse anymore. <laughs> but let's talk a little bit about your life as a health coach and how you work with people. So I know that people come to you, and my hunch is from having done health coaching myself, People are 
sicker than they give themselves credit for. And yet we as health coaches are not healthcare providers. Mm -hmm. So how do you work around that? Yeah. Um, I don't give medical advice. I don't diagnose or treat people, but what I help them do is kind of get in tune with their own bodies and, and their own spirits and help them figure out kind of what's going on for themselves. Uh, sometimes people come to me and they've had a diagnosis that they're not quite sure how to deal with and maybe they've seen a nutritionist and they don't know how to put meals together with these things. Um, but a lot of it is just kind of slowing down and getting in tune with yourself. And the truth is that getting off like packaged processed foods and decreasing stress and, and moving and exercising, those will help with a lot of different things. It's, and a lot of people know that they need to do those things. Uh, they just really need the support and the, the guidance and um, accountability. I think accountability is a big part of it. Um, but you're right. A lot of people don't realize that they're not feeling well, I think, until they do start feeling well. And then they're like, wow, I really didn't feel good last month, you know. A lot, I think a lot of people think being tired and having stomach aches and and needing coffee, like that's normal, uh, but it's not. And, and so what I do with clients is we make small little changes and, and build healthy habits over a period of six months. And at the end of the six months, they, they look back and they realize, yeah, I wasn't feeling good and I feel so much better now and I have a lot of energy and I'm you know, eating more vegetables and drinking water and I'm not relying on caffeine. Mm, that's a wonderful thing. So when people come to you who are not vegan and maybe don't have any interest in being vegan when they first contact you, how do you kind of get some of that in there? How do you encourage people to eat more plants? Um, I always, that does happen occasionally and it can be a little tough if they don't want to go vegan because I'm an ethical vegan, but um, I always really emphasize vegetables. No matter what they're eating, about half of the meal should be vegetables. And um, one of the things that I learned from you that I love to, to share is that your plate should be, should look like a Christmas tree. It should be mostly green with splashes of color. Uh, so I really emphasize the vegetables, the leafy greens, and I do let, I do educate around what goes on in factory farms. And I do let them know that most people eat way too much protein. And if they're eating, uh, you know, if, if they are eating meat, it should be a lot less than, than they think it should be. Um, but I do try to kind of gently urge them towards uh, plant-based proteins like beans and tempeh and tofu and seitan, if they can tolerate gluten. And what do you do when you go out? I know you live in New Jersey, mm -hmm. so you're a little bit suburban. You've got access to New York City. Mm -hmm. What kind of restaurants do you look for? How are you a dining out vegan? You know, the area I live in is so vegan friendly. It's it's pretty amazing. Um, I like to go to some of the more um, ethnic kind of restaurants. In fact, I just uh, on Sunday I had lunch with my friend at an Ethiopian restaurant uh, here in New Jersey. That's so good. They've got about half their menu. I would say is vegan. Um, Japanese restaurants always have 
plant-based sushi and uh, Mediterranean restaurants always have falafels and hummus and things like that. So I tend to look for those kinds of places. Um, but it is it is getting a lot easier in the suburbs because um, they might not be healthy options, but like, you know, even the fast food restaurants have burgers now and things like that. So if you're in a pinch, you can go to places like that. Yes, the, the road trip with no hesitation mm-hmm. <laughs> to take off on the road without a cooler. It's a vegan dream come true. It is amazing, <laughs> yeah. So do you spend a lot of time in the kitchen? Do you hang out in Williams-Sonoma and you're always <laughs> buying gadgets and stuff like that? And, and even if you do, do we have to? No, um, I actually don't spend as much time in the kitchen as people think and and I do have a lot of gadgets, but I honestly don't use them. Uh, and, you know, it was it was at the uh, the book signing, the, the book event for when your book came out, when The Good Karma Diet came out. Someone said that she couldn't go vegan because she couldn't afford new kitchen gadgets. And I had never heard that before. That kind of stuck with me. Um because, you know, people say I can't afford the food, but I've never heard the gadget thing before. Um, but really what you what you need is a cutting board, a sharp knife, pots and pans, the same kinds of things you would need for any diet, really. Um, but the, the two things that I do use the most are uh, my food processor and my blender. And I think a lot of people do have those in their kitchens. Um, recipes that call for those that you don't necessarily have to use I will share tips on how to how to make them without it Um, but I think both of them are really helpful in any kitchen really yeah it's completely revolutionized uh I think dairy-free and egg-free cuisine certainly Mm -hmm. to have the the blender and the food processor and I remember oh my gosh we used to have this manual grinder thing (laughs) that you'd put stuff through but that's ancient history. And mm-hmm. now here we are able to take a road trip without a cooler and mm-hmm. have a fabulous, healthy vegan kitchen without any more stuff than a good knife, a cutting board, a blender, and a food processor, and a copy of Truly Healthy Vegan Cookbook, 90 Whole Food Plant-Based Recipes with Deliciously Simple Ingredients by my good friend, Diane Wenz. Thank you so much for writing this book, and thank you for being in this world. And thanks to all of our listeners for listening today. Thanks to Unity Online Radio for hosting. God bless. Eat your veggies. Thank you for listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. I'm Rachel Corpus, an angel communicator, psychic medium, and host of the Angel Talk podcast. This show is meant to help you remember who you are, a limitless being with shoes and socks on. And along the way, we'll connect to people on the other side and experts in the field like authors, healers, animal communicators, and more. Listen to all my shows at Mind Body Spirit FM or wherever you get your podcasts.